Hello and welcome to Constructor Cast, your AGC place for all the news, views, and interviews relevant to your construction business. I'm your host, Leah Pilconis. Increasingly, public and private owners try to avoid liability in design-build contracts by assigning much of the responsibility for concept design to the contractor. However, design-build contractors do not always bear the risk for design errors or omissions on a design-build project. When an owner plays a substantial role in developing initial designs during the pre-construction process, design-build contractors assume less risk of design error liability and have a greater chance to succeed in recovering additional costs associated with defective owner-provided specifications. On this episode of ConstructorCast, we are going to explore the actual liability standard applied by the courts and other tribunals when a design defect arises on a design-build project. To help me do that, I have with me Dirk Hare, co-chair of Fox Rothschild's Construction Law Practice Group, and David Hecker, Group General Counsel overseeing all claims, litigation, and investigations for Kiewit Corporation. I'm also excited to share that my colleague, Brian Perlberg, AGC Senior Counsel for Construction Law and also Executive Director and Senior Counsel for Consensus Docs, will be co-hosting with me today. Welcome, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Thank you for having us. Great. Thanks for being here. So I wanted to give uh, Dirk and David a chance to give a little bit more background on yourselves before we jump into um, the questions that we have for you today. So Dirk, do you want to start? Anything else you want to share? Sure. In my practice is heavily focused on federal contractors and federal construction arrangements. So uh, the issues we're going to talk about today do come up uh, very regularly on uh, federal contracts um, in the industry. Also, I'm a longtime AGC member and, uh, and in fact, was the Service Supply Council chair uh, of AGC Service Supply Council about uh, 10 years ago. So I uh, have always been very active with AGC, served uh, on the staff. I think with you, Leah, right? Yeah, I was we there. Did. Uh, yeah, back in the late <laughs> 90s, around 2000. Uh, so it's always great to give back to the industry, and I love AGC, and it's it's terrific to support it. Great. Well, thank you. We appreciate your support and you being here today to share your insights and expertise. David? Sure. I'm David Hecker. I've been with Kiwit for almost 20 years. Kiwit is a over 130 year old construction and engineering firm headquartered in Omaha, Nebraska. We do work all over. North America, started doing design build projects back in uh, the early 1990s. So that's for 100, over 100 years, we didn't do any of it. And we've done quite a bit of it in the last uh, 30 years. So I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, thanks. Not a better person to help share your uh, experiences for sure. And Brian, glad to have you co-hosting with me today. Thank you so much, Leah. I've actually been on Constructor Cast as an interviewee, so it's nice to be in the uh, interviewer seat for the first time. Great, thanks. So you, you're you're going to do a great job, I know, because you've got experience. Okay, David, my first question is for you today. What are some of the major differences between design bid build and design build, and what is the more common approach in 2022? Well, that's an easy one. So thank you for starting me out with a softball. So design bid build traditionally has been the owner secures a designer who prepares a design. Once that design is completed, they put it out for bid and a low bidding contractor gets the contract to construct the project. The owner owns the design risk and the contractor is selected based on submitting the lowest price. Uh, In a design build context, 
the owner is looking for a one-stop shop. So they enter into one contract with a designer and builder. They combine in either in a joint venture or in a subcontractor relationship. And they provide the uh, construction and design solution for the owner. In that case, it's an open question, case-by-case analysis, who owns the design. And we'll talk about the details of that going forward. In terms of what's more commonly used today, I think in uh, public projects, probably by numbers of contracts, it's still probably the traditional, what we call rip and read or uh, design bid build. Uh, but maybe in dollar volume, the design build model is is more prevalent, simply because the large infrastructure projects tend to go that way. Okay, I appreciate that background. So, Dirk, we just talked about design bid build, and normally there is legal doctrines that protect general contractors when operating under a traditional contracting process. Could you talk to me a little bit about how that might operate differently under a design build scenario? And specifically, could you talk a little bit about what the spearing doctrine is and how it might be different under design build? Sure. So the spearing doctrine is a U.S. Supreme Court case from 1918. So it's 104 years old at this point. And and that's where, as David just mentioned, you know, a lot of contracts still these days are designed bid build, certainly maybe not by dollar volume, but by uh, numbers of contracts awarded. So uh, if we go back to 1918 or 104 years ago, there wasn't really design build. And the issue involved with the Spearing case was George Spearing was the name of the gentleman who had a contracting company. And he won a contract from the Navy at the uh, Brooklyn Naval Yard in New York. And that contract was to build a dry dock for the Navy. The contractor built the dry dock. It involved, among other things, he had to relocate a sewer line in order to build the dry dock. And the work was successfully completed. The uh, dry dock went into service. About a year after it was completed, a very significant rain event occurred and flooding ensued through the sewer line that he had built caused a collapse of the sewer line and then it uh, infiltrated into the dry dock. When they went in and figured out what had happened, it turned out that unbeknownst to anyone, there was a dam that was in the the sewer line and the dam failed. And, And so the litigation involved uh, Mr. Spearin's company suing the Navy for the costs of the, the damages. And, and so Spearin ultimately ended up prevailing in that case because the United States Supreme Court established the principle that if an, a public owner in this case has a design that they provide to a third-party contractor and the contractor successfully executes that, uh, that design in accordance with the four corners of that design and the result is a failure, then the contractor is not going to be responsible for that design failure. So that's where what we're talking about today emanates from. The the basics of this bedrock principle construction law comes from this uh, Navy dry dock case back in 1918. And how is Spearing being applied today? Over the last 10 years in particular, we've started to see the courts, particularly uh, the Court of Federal Claims, as well as the Boards of Contract Appeals, try and start 
to address some of these issues. We did a presentation earlier today that drilled down on some of these cases. And uh, I know that AGC is going to share our slides from that presentation uh, along with this podcast. So I encourage you to go look at those slides. I would say in general, what has developed in Spearin analysis is applied to design build is the tribunals will seek to evaluate whether there is a design specification or a performance specification. The courts have shown a propensity if it is a design specification in particular to potentially hold owners and their third-party consultants responsible for errors that designers that are derived from that owner supplied information. This is still an area that is developing in terms of the law and its application. So design builders are gonna wanna continue to pay close attention to what is developing in this area legally. But I do think the Spearin doctrine has been already adopted in a few instances and applied to design build contracts, and we would like to see that continue. And David, my ears perked up and you explained it very clearly in the presentation earlier, the difference between whether or not the owner kind of imposed on the contractor to do something a certain way, and there was no flexibility in the decision-making process, or whether the contractor had flexibility to make the decision. Do you see that really as a test that is useful for folks to think about in determining whether or not the Spear and Doctrine might apply? I agree with that. I think it's kind of a cheat sheet for the way I think of the issue, and that is the premise of Spearing is that if the owner provides you something with the intention that you rely upon it, it turns out to be inaccurate. The owner is responsible for the damages that flow from that. I think that premise continues even in a design-build context. Again, the design is not provided by the owner, but they put a lot of prescriptive design criteria upon the design-builder And if those prescriptive design criteria turn out to be false or inaccurate or incorrect or not buildable, the owner should be responsible for that. And I think that's consistent with what the cases have said. Thank you. That's helpful. David, just to further fill out background on this and to compare and contrast, how are the risks different in CM at risk? So construction management at risk is, um, I think, less risky. It invites uh, early contractor involvement and collaboration with the designer who's at that point only prepared a preliminary design. The contractor is selected not based on lowest price or schedule, but based on qualifications. And there's a period of time when the contractor and designer and the owner, in fact, work together to refine the design, complete the design, and come up with a schedule and a guaranteed maximum price. So I think the ability to collaborate amongst a team, uh, address constructability issues, and formalize scheduling in a more realistic way, get accurate pricing from subcontractors with the benefit of better information, I think all tends to reduce the risk for contractors, and I think it's a good thing. Dirk, do you think the design build could even be called an alternative project delivery method at this point? I do think it is properly continued to be called an alternative delivery method. You know, I think most industry folks recognize that the traditional method of project delivery was and still is design bid build. And so as we, you know, design build developed, I guess, really 30 plus years ago in terms of when it 
started to become somewhat widely adopted. And so the, the fact that it's very regularly used these days, it, it still is an alternative to the traditional design bid build approach. And both can work quite well, or both can work quite badly, <laughs> depending on the particular needs of the project. I hear that builders who take the lead on design build projects seem to like design build because it affords a better opportunity to turn a profit on the project. Is that true in your experience? I don't know that I would look at it that way. I, I think there, there are each different ways to manage risk on a project. You know, theoretically, if you manage risk properly on a project, each of these methods would deliver the profit that the contractor has uh, assumed in its bid. I think, and, and maybe David would, would like to jump in here as well. I, I think one of the challenges, if we're going to talk about design bid build particularly is, and we were just discussing this on our panel earlier today, David has some very good thoughts on the owner wanting to shift the risk of design under a design build contract, but a lot of owners don't want to lose the control uh, that they have. And I, I think that's a, a big, significant issue. And when you talk about profit, that becomes a very serious risk, I think. No, that's right. I think when you're talking about public infrastructure projects, you're typically contracting with a state DOT, for example. And the state DOT's job is to, to operate, maintain, and construct their road system. They have a long history of doing that. And when they're told that for the next project, somebody else is going to be responsible for the design and the quality assurance, quality control, and, and other things that they're used to doing, uh, they have a hard time changing their mindset and allowing the contractor the ability to innovate and deliver a solution in a cost-effective manner. I think our experience has been that owners just have a hard time shifting their mindset. They don't want to relinquish control over quality over design parameters that want their entire system to be a, a unified whole and not just look at a project as, a, as an individual item. David, why do you think that some highway contractors have been a little bit slower to warm up to adopt design build as an alternative option or delivery system for projects? Yeah, I'm not sure that, the, that our market um, has been slow to, to to do that. I think the issue has been in a number of jurisdictions, um, public owners have not had the authority to enter into design-build contracts. Okay. In some states, it's very difficult to do it. In other states where it's allowed, I think you've seen um, a, a level of popularity that's fairly significant. I don't think it's that we don't welcome design-build. I think our concern is that we're wary about how it's actually implemented. And touching on the point we just mentioned, design build on paper, but in reality, it's it's a hybrid where we're taking all the risk and the owners are still getting uh, to influence a significant amount of the decisions that we would typically be entitled to make on a design build contract. Yeah, and we're really going to be getting into that a little bit deeper. So, Dirk, I recently participated in a Consensus Docs webinar on contract killer clauses, and we covered the bread and butter issues, indemnification, scope of the work, payment terms. I was wondering if you had some thoughts when under a design build contract, what risks that are traditional that you think about in a contract, what rises more to the, the top that might be elevated and are any risks that might be decreased a little bit under a design build contract? You've got different site conditions, I think, as a very significant risk issue right now in the design build context. The owner still 
frequently provides some kind of geotechnical or soils information in the original program. And that information can often be, even if it's not necessarily wrong, doesn't provide enough specific information to allow the bidders to each have a common view of the potential risks associated with that issue, which obviously, you know, and even if we're talking about a best value situation, the competitors are still going to be very mindful of price and they're not necessarily going to want to throw in unnecessarily large dollars to cover risks in the soils. I mean, this is the most common issue that we've seen arise as a as an increase. I mean, I think most owners aren't, aren't even particularly enamored of a, a differing site conditions clause or, you know, concerns about differing site conditions, even in the context of design bid build. I think they become even more aggressive on that issue in a design build situation and will frequently, you know, point to exculpatory clauses, just throwaway language from the third party consultant that basically says, well, you can't rely on any of this information. So I think that continues to be an area that that bears watching. I would say in addition to that, your inspections clauses in a lot of standard packages are increasingly, particularly in P3 projects with DOTs, where you've got different parties to the life cycle of the project who are trying to assemble QA and QC requirements among the design builder, the concessionaire, and other entities to make sure that they're building a quality project. And what happens is oftentimes the public owner, the the DOT, will still have something of a role, although the contract documents may be unclear about what that role is, but something of a role with respect to their own quality assurance. And they will have their own third-party consultant who will come in and maybe takes a very different view on the compliance with a variety of issues with concrete inspections, uh, rebar, uh, things of that nature. And you sometimes then get a very difficult situation for the design builder where they are being responsive to not only their internal QA, QC requirements, but then this external owner provided third party uh, organization that may be taking more onerous and perhaps extra contractual views of what the uh, QAQC requirements are. That sounds really familiar that we were talking about something that the owner might be entitled to do under the contract, but if they do it as an overreach, that it really becomes a, a problem. Yeah. And I think David has some actually some very good uh, experiences on this if you want to jump in. Yeah, it's just, um, you know, it's the classic death by a thousand cuts story where if it happens once or twice, it's an appeasement to the client and you're happy to do it. If it happens thousands of times, it can have a real impact on the cost of construction and your ability to complete the work in a timely fashion. So obviously anything in excess is a problem. And uh, we've seen, unfortunately, and I think it relates back to my earlier comment about owners not wanting to give up control. And so one way that they impose their will upon you is in the comment process, uh, in the inspection process. And, uh, you know, it's either agree to what they're asking for or there's a delay to the project. And certainly we don't want delays. Delays uh, cost a lot of money. And if this happens repeatedly on a project, they can become a very significant issue to the contractor. I would just, I would just also add in terms of risks, you know, any time on a design build project, having to interface with third parties, it's a very big risk. And examples would be acquiring right away that's necessary for the project. 
dealing with utilities who have conflicts with the project and need to be relocated or protected. Very often because of the ability to enter into the design-build contract model, the owner that you're dealing with is not the end user of the project. And so the end user of the project may want to have a lot to say about what this project is, even though they're not a contracting party. And they'll put a lot of demands upon the party you contracted with to require certain things that you didn't think were in the contract. Anytime you're dealing with potential third parties where there's uncertainty there about what they're going to require, when they're going to require it, it's a big risk. These are big, big jobs and very complex, and anything that hits you can cost a lot of money. Before we move on, I was wondering if you had any horror stories when you talk about death by a thousand cuts. We um, had a recent P3 project. Uh, It was valued at over a billion dollars on the East Coast. And we were getting hammered with owner comments. And at first blush, we thought too many of them were preferential and not really contractual. So we did a survey of 2,000 of 15,500 submittals that we had provided the owner. On the 2,000 submittals, we had 11,000 comments. And of the 11,000 comments, 79% of them, or 8,000, were owner preferences. And uh, we extrapolated that to the entire universe of uh, submittals and found that of the 110,000 comments we got from the owner, 88,000 of the comments were preferential or things that they did not have a contractual right to ask or impose us. Some of these are fairly innocuous. Some of them are fairly complex to analyze and determine whether it's something we actually have to do or whether it's an owner preference. Just averaging an hour for preferential comment to analyze it is 49 man years. That's a big distraction for a project. So we talk about death by a thousand cuts. In that case, it was death by 88,000 cuts. And it started from the very beginning of the project and ended probably on the last submittal that we, we provided before turning the project over. So on big jobs, the problems can magnify themselves very significantly. Wow. David, there's been some news. It's been pretty publicized that some large contractors have said, we're just not going to do any more design build work. What is the process that you think most companies go through in deciding with design build work? How much risk is just too much risk? And what are ways that perhaps a company can help mitigate that risk? Well, as you said, these are large, complex projects to start with. And typically, the dollar value to make it worthwhile to do it in a design-build format is over $100 million. And oftentimes, these projects exceed a billion dollars in cost. And I'm familiar with some of the contractors that have exited the market. And the project losses that they uh, publicized exceeded were in the tens to over hundreds of millions of dollars on individual projects. Uh, For any company, that is not sustainable. And I'm sure those contractors looked at why they lost the money on those projects and concluded that they could not foreclose the possibility of encountering similar issues on future work. Compounding that is the difficulty in resolving any potential claims that you may have through an onerous, delayed uh, process for resolving disputes. Big dollar claims are hard to sell. 
we don't always see willing partners to negotiate resolutions of those big dollar claims. I think all of those issues combined make uh, make it very obvious a very obvious decision for a contractor to say, "I'm not going to do this again. I can't afford to lose that kind of money again." And they make a logical decision to say, "I'm not going to remain in that business." Uh, other options are to change the way in which you participate in that business. Um, maybe you'll only be a subcontractor and not take on the design portion of the risk. In our case, we have built up our own internal design expertise and capacity so that we can control and integrate the design uh, component of these design-build projects as an element of our construction to support our construction activities. So rather than subcontracting to one of the major design firms, we're going to try and do most of that work ourselves and just use the design firms for discrete elements of um, design and like geotechnical work in a particular location or something. But we're going to try and take the uh, more control over the design risk. But these losses are not sustainable. And I think that's the lesson that the industry needs to appreciate is if nobody's willing to take the risk of these kinds of losses, then we're going to have to change the contracting model or there won't be any contractors left to bid. Dirk, the number one issue that I seem to get questions on these days and a lot of our listeners get is, what am I going to do about price escalation and the supply chain disruptions? How does this play out with some of the design liability concerns that you and David have been talking about? Uh, I mean, I think it's a very significant concern right now. There was another session earlier today here at the AGC convention that focused on the supply chain disruptions and problems there. Um, you know, the contractual answer to this is actually fairly simple, right? If you're on the federal side, the federal FAR Clause 52216-4 provides for uh, price escalation and you, you have an index and you can, if, if the government will agree, you can uh, satisfy uh, material price escalation through, through that contract clause. There are a variety of reasons why it's not widely used. Uh, but that vehicle is there. Uh, similarly, as you know, as the consensus docs uh, head on private commercial contracts, consensus docs has a uh, price escalation amendment, which can be utilized to address these issues. I think the major challenge right now is nobody knows where price escalation is going to go. We don't know how long it's going to persist. And it's a real significant problem for the industry. And I think this is one area where owners in particular need to take a leadership role to communicate with design builders. And frankly, it affects design bid builders as well to try and put some guardrails around unreasonable price escalation and try and be a partner and make decisions on how to collectively address the fact that certain items may not get delivered for very a very lengthy period of time so i you know it's an issue for some period of time we don't know how long and it lends itself to being very important that owners in particular recognize the situation and not try and pass all of the risk for price escalation onto the contractors brian this is an issue that we're evaluating uh, currently on several design build projects and it's the classic double whammy for a contractor you know, poor or incomplete design uh, leads to insufficient quantities in our bids from the first place. So if I need 200 to build the project, I have 100 widgets instead. And then you add to that the fact that we've got dramatic cost escalation on these items. So 
Now I've got cost escalation on 200 things and I only had 100 things at a much lower price in my estimate. So it's a big risk. Again, we're looking at this on a number of projects. One of the challenges is to allocate these cost overruns towards either an estimating error, a design error in providing quantity information or escalation. And it's not always a very black and white decision that you can make. So evaluating that and assigning the responsibility to the appropriate party is one of the challenges that is added to this already complex situation. Excellent. Let me ask this just briefly. What are the chances of having a design claim when we're talking about quantity takeoff errors when you're a design builder working with an outside design firm? Significant. We've had a number of those types of claims they're difficult to resolve. It raises a number of interesting issues as a lawyer that I never encountered. You know, historically, when you think of uh, error and omission claim against a designer, you envision that the project doesn't work, the bridge falls down. These claims are about a designer failing to perform their obligations that are contractual. You didn't deliver the design on time. The quality of a preliminary package was inadequate. Pre-award work, this isn't the final design, the pre-award work was insufficient to support an accurate estimate. These are relatively untested theories. Uh, there's not case law out there or not very extensive case law that talks about errors and omissions for breaches of the standard of care uh, related to failure to pay a subconsultant timely, failure to meet delivery requirements for design packages the quality of incomplete design packages and what standards uh, they should meet. Those are all relatively novel legal topics that there's very little on in terms of research and writing. We've um, tried a number of these issues in confidential matters and have learned some lessons through that process. Uh, the designers push back very hard on these types of claims. Certainly their insurers do not want to see an expansion of the types of claims that a contractor or anybody can pursue against designers. So these are very challenging issues for us. And it's unfortunate that this is a path that we have to go down to try and recover losses that we absolutely sustain constructing these design build projects. And you know whether you have participation by the owner or by the designer, I can guarantee the contractors are always the ones that are spending money for sure. And whether others participate in, in contributing to reduce that impact is a very difficult question and, and very challenging and unfortunately engages the lawyers with a lot of effort. So, I wanted to ask you a little bit about P3s. If you could tell our listeners a little bit about what P3s are and if the design liability increases, I mean, should we assume that a P3 project always uses a design build operations for contracts and then adds operations, maintenance, and maybe financing to it. From our standpoint, it's a design build contract with the developer. The developer also will do separate agreements typically with a maintenance contractor and with others. Uh, so from our perspective, we look at it as a design build contract with design build responsibilities. Enhancing challenges for us is that any claim against the developer are very limited. And it's because there's not an unlimited pool of money out there that we can draw against. The funding for the project is limited. And so you can't have just some massive claim without somebody 
you know, behind it to be able to satisfy it. So the contracts are generally written in a way that only grants you certain limited rights to pursue a claim and have very stringent and short notice requirements. So the contractor has got to be on notice from day one that they've got to meet these notice requirements or they may not have a claim. They may waive it. And as I described earlier, when you have a death by 88,000 cuts, whether or not you submit a claim after cut number one or cut number 8,000 or cut number 80,000 is a real difficult question. And certainly from my experience, the owners will not agree that any notice is good notice. It's got to be very early and frequent. And if you're building a project, that's one of the things that your counterparts hate the most is getting lots of notice letters. So it's a very difficult thing to pursue claims in P3. We don't like to do it, but again, the losses on some of these projects are massive. Thank you. So thinking about kind of some pointers that we can share or some, a path forward, some best practices, Dirk, what would you say to folks who really are trying to evaluate whether or not there is an opportunity for them to kind of push back, whether they have a position and the grounds to say that the owner's trying to shift too much risk to the contractor under a design build product delivery model? What are some things to think about and to look for? I think there's two approaches to this. One is very practical at the project level where you've got a project and you're dealing with these issues. And the the other is an industry, collective industry education approach. Speaking uh, specifically on a, on a project by project situation, I think any design builder that is faced with some of the issues that we're talking about here should very early on try and evaluate where the underlying design problem has come from, right? Is it part of their design team or is it a requirement that's come from the owner and owner's conceptual designer and owner's third-party consultant and quickly figure out what the design builder is dealing with in that regard. I, I think once they figure that out, if it is in fact not something that the design builder believes that it should be responsibility for, then I do think you need to very clearly communicate that, obviously respectfully, but you want to try and raise that issue to David's point about notice, particularly on some of these large projects. It is annoying for the owner's entity to get, you know, continual notices. But the problem is the owner's counsel will be the first to use that against the design builder if they can't bridge the differences on the issues and you end up in some kind of litigation. So I think it's really important for the design builder to quickly make an assessment of that potential risk exposure and then clarify that for the owner. And then hopefully they can resolve the issues collaboratively at an earlier stage. The broader issue here, I think, is, and I think David actually said this on our our panel earlier, the problem is the design builder, and maybe even this podcast, the design builder is kind of stuck between designers who seem to have figured out a way to pass liability to the design builder and owners who seem to have figured out a fairly effective way to do the same. And so they're getting squeezed in the middle and they are the ones typically having to bear the cost 
of the resolution of the issue, they have to complete the project. They're out of pocket for very significant dollars. In the meantime, the other two parties are trying to say, not me, <laughs> effectively. And so, you know, ultimately these things get resolved and sometimes the design builder succeeds and is able to recover some of its damages. I doubt very many ever fully <laughs> recover their, their position from a, you know, from a proposal standpoint. So owner education in particular, I think, and design industry education with design firms, I think would be fairly important. And so I do think we've reached a point of the problem has festered for a number of years, probably 10 or more years, as you've seen some cases start to come down addressing the liability issues here in this context. And I think now is the time to try and get some industry involvement with trying to set some better best practices for risk practices on this, because otherwise I think it's going to continue to go in the wrong direction. And then large firms like Kiewit are going to have to make a decision is, is this project just too risky given the parameters of the solicitation and how the different parties are approaching the project? If I were to talk to a, a contractor who was contemplating getting into design build, one observation I might share with them, maybe something that's obvious to others, but seems to have become an underpinning of some of the issues we have with our designers, and that is the fundamental disconnect between the interests pre-bid. You think about it on a design-build project, the, the contractor, the design builder, is providing a firm fixed price to complete the scope of work. To get that bid in place, they engage a designer who typically works under a memorandum of understanding for a very limited amount of fee, and they're tasked with coming up with a preliminary design on which the contractor can prepare a competent, reasonable estimate. The contractor wins the ultimate award by having the lowest price in a competitive bid environment. So if I'm a designer and I'm preparing a preliminary design, my incentive is not to do the very best job I can on the preliminary work, but to get the design subcontract. And to get the design subcontract, my contractor has to get the prime award by being the lowest cost. So when I'm coming up with my quantities and my takeoffs and my preliminary design, the designer's incentive is to come up with a way to have the lowest price possible in the hands of the contractor. Less quantities for the designer is good because it means a lower price for the contractor. And I'm not suggesting that it's an intentional effort, but the incentives are disconnected. The lower the bid, the more likely it is for the designer to get their lump sum design subcontract. And that's what they're in it for, is to get that contract. The contractor wants to have an accurate estimate so they don't lose money. And that fundamental disconnect, I think, is something that you have to be aware of and make sure that when you're doing your estimate, carefully review the information that the designers are providing you and really scrub the what-ifs. What if we got this wrong? What assumptions were being made? Ask a lot of hard questions of your designer to make sure they included everything that they need to include. Otherwise, you're going to be the one left holding the bag with your lump sum contract to perform scopes of work that you didn't include in your estimate. Thank you both for the, for the great advice. And I think having this conversation and your candor and just sharing your thoughts, I think will hopefully help continue discussion and continue to get a better meeting of the minds. And I appreciate your time today. Any parting words? No, thank you very much for the opportunity. <laughs> it was a joy to speak with all of you today. 
and I wish you all the best. Yeah, likewise. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate you guys being on the show. Brian, I appreciate you co-hosting. I know it's been a very eye-opening episode for me. I certainly learned a lot, and I... I think you each mentioned a few times about the fact that we're here at AGC's convention. You both been so gracious with your time because you gave a presentation just earlier today. We're going to put a link to the presentation slides in the show notes for this episode. So folks who are listening, if you want to go ahead and take a look at that additional resource, it'll be there for you. We'll also make sure that we include links on how you can get in touch with David and Dirk. Thank you, Brian, for co-hosting with me. and thanks so much everyone out there for listening we appreciate it this has been the agc constructor cast please subscribe to the constructor cast from your podcast app or stream all available episodes right from your computer at agc.org slash constructor cast